Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 42. Today we'll be discussing the use of nintenanib for systemic sclerosis-associated interstitial lung disease, the census trial. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about evidence-based medicine in the news today. There's a lively Twitter discussion about outcome measures, which is going to be relatively applicable to the paper discussion today. Now, this recent discussion was centered around an editorial that was published in the journal Rheumatology discussing outcome measures in Sjogren's syndrome. A similar online discussion arose a couple months back regarding outcome measures in lupus, and I think these communities are relatively similar, so I think I'll make my point broadly to both of them. Now, the contention that I often hear is that X drug, typically rituximab, but often belimumab or others, didn't work as well in X disease state, typically lupus, but in this case Sjogren's disease, because our outcome measures were insufficient. Now, I'm sympathetic to this concern. Outcome measures are complicated. If your outcome measure doesn't assess something important that matters to patients, well, then it's pretty easy to imagine that you'd wind up missing some important effect. I would contend that this is typically not the case, and the people who are saying this are trying to resuscitate drugs that probably just don't work very well. For instance, this editorial that I was talking about cited the Tractus study. This was an evaluation of rituximab for Sjogren's syndrome that showed no efficacy in the primary and secondary endpoints. Maybe that's because the primary and secondary endpoints were insufficient. Well, let me tell you about the endpoints that were in the Tractus study. At baseline and at weeks 16, 24, 36, and 48, patients recorded vast questionnaires about dryness, overall dryness, ocular dryness, oral dryness, disease activity, and also the profile fatigue and discomfort symptoms inventory, SF36, the EQ5D, unstimulated and stimulated salivary flow measurements, the ESSDAI, the Sjogren's Syndrome Disease Index, the Sjogren's Syndrome Damage Index, the Sjogren's Syndrome Disease Damage Index, the Sjogren's Syndrome Clinical Activity Index, and global assessments of damage at baseline in 24 and 48 weeks. That is a lot of outcome measures. Sure, those may be flawed individually, but if none of these outcome measures showed any benefit, then at least you have to conclude that this drug won't help regarding those outcome measures. And in this case, that's a pretty comprehensive list. I think that's all I have to say about this for now, but I have two challenges for anyone who wants to make this contention when a trial seems not to show effect. The first is to choose an outcome measure from the beginning that you believe in. All-cause mortality being the best, we don't get a lot of that in rheumatology, so perhaps a strong indicator of disease activity, or maybe a patient-reported outcome that you actually think reflects how a patient is really doing. My second contention is that if you want to argue that the outcome measure was insufficient, at the very least, if you're prescribing this to a patient, you should tell the patient, hey, we did these eight outcome measures and it didn't help on any of these, but I think there's still something there. I feel like that might be a hard conversation to have. With that, let's get to the census trial. So in a recent episode, I had a lively debate with Chase Correa, one of the scleroderma experts at Northwestern where I practice currently. We discussed some of the history of randomized controlled trials in systemic sclerosis. We've had a couple good randomized controlled trials that assessed cyclophosphamide and Celsept. Both of them showed some improvements in a surrogate endpoint, which is typically the FVC. And at least the scleroderma lung study number one did show a small, questionably relevant improvements in the HAC and SF36. So perhaps patients felt a little bit better. For practicing clinicians, we all know this is a challenging disease and these patients desperately need new therapies. 
Now, in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which isn't exactly the same as systemic sclerosis, but it shares some important similarities, nintendinib, an intracellular inhibitor of tyrosine kinases, appears to work somewhat. It has antifibrotic, anti-inflammatory, and vascular remodeling properties, and so you'd imagine that it may be something that would help in systemic sclerosis. To evaluate this question, these authors performed a good randomized controlled trial. It was double-blind, placebo-controlled, and performed in 32 countries. Patients all had systemic sclerosis, which was diagnosed within the seven years before screening. Interstitial lung disease was also present in all of the patients, diagnosed on the basis of high-resolution CT scanning. Patients had to have an FVC that was at least 40% of predicted value to get into the study, and a DLCO that was between 30 and 90% of a predicted value. So you couldn't be too sick, but you had to have interstitial lung disease that had impacted your pulmonary function testing. Patients receiving prednisone and mycophenolate were still allowed to get in, but clinically meaningful pulmonary hypertension was an exclusion criteria. Patients were randomized into two groups. One group got 150 milligrams of nintendinib, and the other group got placebo. The primary endpoint, and again, we're talking about endpoints, was the functional vital capacity, the FVC, assessed over 52 weeks. Already, I'm not a big fan of that. Yes, it's what we've done in prior trials of systemic sclerosis. Yes, if this drug works, it would be one of the first things we would expect to see change. But no, I don't think that's a patient-centric outcome. What do I mean by that? Well, if I'm going to prescribe this drug to a patient, I would like to be able to say, this does something that matters to you. Now, FVC only matters to patients insofar as we have scared them into worrying about it. This isn't how dyspneic they feel. This isn't how long they live. This isn't how long they have a meaningful quality of life. This is just a surrogate outcome. We're measuring how much their lung fit function changes over time. Key secondary endpoints included the modified Rodin skin score and the St. George's respiratory questionnaire at week 52. These are reasonable, but then the authors did something that I commend them for, which was to include a number of patient-reported outcome measures that, if they changed, I would say that this is the kind of drug I'd be excited to give a patient. These include the HACC, um, the Health Assessment Questionnaire, DI, as well as the FACET Dyspnea Questionnaire. Statistical analysis was all more or less appropriate, so let's get into the results. So about half of patients in the study had diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, and half had limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis. This is a good opportunity to remind the fellows out there that diffuse systemic sclerosis and limited systemic sclerosis does not refer to whether or not it affects the internal organs. This is a common misconception. It only refers to the distribution of skin findings. Patients with limited disease have disease distal to the elbows and can involve the face, whereas diffuse can involve all of the skin. Now, both of these groups can get interstitial lung disease, with diffuse tending to have a higher rate. Patients in the study were on average 54 years of age. FVC was 72.5 on average, and DLCO was 53. So these are patients with real interstitial lung disease. The extent of fibrosis on their CT scans was 36%, again, a pretty fair amount. Now, among the patients who received at least one dose, 81% in the nintendinib group and 89% in the placebo group completed the trial. The half-full interpretation is that four in five patients completed therapy. The what-the-heck's-going-on-here interpretation is that for some reason, there is an 8% absolute difference between the groups and who completed the trial. That's a big problem. Why is that a problem? For one, dropout is an issue when you go to analyze the data. There could be something that's different between the patients who dropped out and the patients who consider the continue the trial. The second problem is that obviously this drug wasn't as well tolerated as placebo. 
The fact that less patients managed to complete the trial tells us that something about this drug was hard for patients to take. Now, regarding the primary endpoint, the annual rate of change in FVC over a 52-week period that wound up being lower in the nintendinib group. The difference was negative 52.4 milliliters per year versus negative 93.3 milliliters per year, or a difference of 41.0 milliliters per year. 41 is kind of a big number, so that sounds exciting, right? Not so fast. 41 is a big number compared to what? Well, the FVC in this trial of patients who were enrolled was 2,459. So that change of 41 milliliters between the groups, that's actually only a 1.2% difference. Not very exciting at all. Now, if the authors had decided to put this into a graphical form, perhaps they could have shown this in a more honest way that demonstrated that that difference is relatively small in absolute terms. Not so much. Figure 2A and 2C essentially put on a masterclass in how to design a totally deceptive graph. So in figure 2A, they show the adjusted annual rate of change in the FVC. Okay, fair, those are the real numbers. But the graph goes from 0 to negative 120. That scale is completely meaningless. The scale should go from 0 to 2400, I suppose, to actually demonstrate that this is a tiny absolute difference. They didn't do that. Doubling down, they do the same scale for their mean absolute change in baseline. This is a classic trick that advertising companies use to show that some benefit is enormous, when in reality it's quite small. If you're not buying this, let me give you an analogy. Let's say someone gives us both $100. I take 50, you take 50, and we both go to the store. Now let's say you blow $2.60 buying yourself some candy, and I spend $1.40. When we come back to tell our friend who gave us the money, you say, ah, we spent about the same amount, which is true. And I say, whoa, hold on a bit there. You can't trust that guy. I spent 44% less than he did. It doesn't make any sense at all, right? The actual difference between how much we spent was a buck 20. But when the press release came out from Boringer Ingelheim, and I quote, a 44% reduction in lung function decline indicates a significant slowdown in disease progression. Nintetinib could make a considerable difference to the lives of people with this rare and often life-threatening disease. That's not untrue, but just like figure 2A and 2C, I find it incredibly misleading. The absolute difference between groups from this drug is pretty small. Looking at this another way, let's pick a difference in the FVC that we actually care about. I don't think 1.2% is something any patient would ever notice or actually really care about. Now in other literature, it seems like 5% is a generally accepted cutoff, maybe 10% for what the minimal clinical difference would be. So in this paper, they said, what percentage of patients who got nintendinib or placebo experienced a 5 percentage point difference? So in the nintendinib group, 20.6% of patients had a 5% reduction. And in the placebo group, 28.5% of patients had a 5% reduction. I think that's a better way to explain this trial. Among patients who received nintendinib, the rate of a clinically meaningful decline in FVC was 8% less than it was in patients who received placebo doesn't sound quite as impressive as when you say 44% or show a gaudy graph with the misleading y-axis applied to it. What does that translate to? Well, it's a number needed to treat of 13. So I would say that I need to treat 13 patients with nintendinib in order to bring about a meaningful clinical change in one patient. That's a lot of patients getting nintendinib for me to do something that I actually care about. Now, if you'd like to argue that I'm being a little bit too hard on the drug, did patients actually feel better who took it? No. 
HackDI, facet dyspnea no difference whatsoever. So no matter what this drug did to the patient's surrogate outcome, to the change in FVC, it didn't make people feel better and didn't improve their quality of life. So the flip side of benefit is cost. What happened to patients who took this drug? Unfortunately, it was not very well tolerated. About 8% of patients had to discontinue the drug because of the drug. The most common adverse event, diarrhea. 76% of patients with intentative had diarrhea versus 32% with placebo. That is really high. That means that I need to treat three patients with this drug in order to cause one to have diarrhea. Vomiting, similar, 14% absolute difference. I need to treat seven patients with this drug to cause one episode of vomiting. So what's the most likely outcome of giving someone an intentative? Diarrhea. Second most likely outcome, vomiting. Third most likely outcome, a change in a surrogate endpoint. Now, if you're wondering whether or not this diarrhea and vomiting actually mattered, it did. The rate of weight loss in the attentive group was 12% versus 4% in placebo. Think of the patients that you treat with systemic sclerosis and ask yourself if they can afford to lose weight. In most cases, the answer is no, and the fact that they're losing weight makes me feel like this diarrhea and vomiting is a pretty big thing that's affecting them. There is no difference in overall mortality, which is good because the drug didn't kill people, but that also means that it didn't save anyone's life either. This was probably too short of a trial and too small of a trial to really assess that, but it's worth noting that there was no large signal to that direction. With the results in mind, let's dig a little bit deeper. So one thing these authors did, which I like, is they did a sensitivity analysis where they essentially asked the question, what if we take that missing data and assume that it went the wrong direction for us? Well, when you do that, it turns out that this was not a significant trial. So the effect of this drug was small enough that the p-value needed just a few cases going the other way to tip it into non-significance. Okay, so that's one problem. Problem number two is a lot of patients were receiving mycophenolate mofetil here. As it turned out, the decline in FVC in the placebo group and the magnitude of the effect of nitenitib depended upon the use of mycophenolate. So this tells me that if you're actually treating a patient with MMF, then maybe nitenitib isn't going to help very much at all. And finally, let me give you one more concern that I had when I was reading this trial. We've all had patients who come to the hospital with boggy, fluid-filled lungs because of heart failure. We diurese them aggressively. And all of a sudden, they start breathing well and their lung function improves. I have no strong evidence for this, but I do wonder, if you take a patient who has a lot of inflammation and a lot of fibrosis in their lungs, and then you give them a whole bunch of diarrhea, dehydrate them, dry them out, get those lungs as dry as possible, and then do pulmonary function tests, is it possible that just the loss of fluid in the lungs would improve the FVC? I don't know. I'd love to hear input from our pulmonology friends on that point, but it's something I considered when I was reading this. And if that's the case, then we're really just improving lung function by giving people a whole lot of unpleasant diarrhea. So let me bring this all together. I know I've been pretty critical of this drug, and that's not entirely fair. They did show a benefit in some primary outcome measure, and there are probably some patients who would respond to this drug who would be worth getting it. I do not think this is something that I'm going to be giving broadly, but in the case where someone has perhaps failed MMF and cyclophosphamide, it's something I would consider. But when I considered it, I would tell the patient that there is a good chance you will have more diarrhea, more vomiting, and weight loss, and it would be worth making sure that you know that going into therapy. I think that's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in, and have a great week.